0: Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you, so let's get to it. Good morning, Ascent. Psalm chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. We're continuing this uh, Advent series where we're looking at uh, some of the people who are waiting for Jesus before his first advent, as we now as Christians, we stand in this kind of in-between time in which we have seen God manifested, embodied in Jesus Christ in his first advent. And we await for him to come back as a ruling and reigning king again. And uh, so as we as we enter this season, it's really interesting to look back at people like King David, who's writing about 700 to 1,000 years. We're not really sure when this psalm was particularly written. Uh, but as he's waiting on Jesus... Uh, we get to see a lot more clearly uh, what he is talking about. We learn in the New Testament that this psalm, in particular, is about Jesus. It is a messianic psalm. Uh, So Psalm chapter 2 would have been read any time Israel had a new king. They would read this out. It was advice for the king, and it was advice for the people who were listening to him. But what it was also a reminder of was that one day there would be a great king who would come. And Israel would ultimately have peace. But not just Israel. This king of Israel would be the king of the world, and he would create peace for everybody in the world. And the Israelites for years have been waiting on this Messiah, this king to come. And uh, we know as Christians on the other side of Jesus' coming that that king has come. And that king's name is Jesus. And so we're going to celebrate him today. We're going to look at this psalm in light of Advent. Uh, But before I do that, I'm going to pray for us. And I also want to let you know, those of you who are following along in the Advent guide... Uh it's it's been a really great week. Uh and I know some of you asked for Advent Guides and I tried to order them and they sold out of them. So uh next year I'll buy more Advent Guides now that I know more of us are interested in it. But that doesn't mean you can't celebrate. Uh as we're preaching this week on peace, you can meditate upon the peace of God, and there's a lot of great free studies online as well. Um in fact just meditating on Psalm two might be something great for you to do this week. Now let me pray for us and then we'll jump in. Father God, as we come to your text today. I pray that you'd calm our spirits. God, I pray that we would experience your peace. Uh, Lord, I pray in particular for those who are brokenhearted today. Uh, God, I don't know why that's weighing on my spirit, but um, your psalms tell us that you draw near to those who are crushed in spirit. And God, I know today as we come into this Christmas season, there's a lot of us who are feeling a little crushed uh, in spirit. As we think upon what we have lost or what we don't have. Uh, Or where we'd rather be. God, all of these things uh, can lead us to to a place of anguish. And uh, Lord, we need your peace. And the only way we find that peace is through your spirit and through you, King Jesus. God, we love you and we praise you. Amen. Amen. Psalm 2 answers uh, the question of why there is no peace. That's interesting. In uh, 1913. Uh, from April to November, there was a World Fair held in Brussels. And this World Fair was on peace. And the whole idea was that we had finally made it as humanity. Uh, we had new inventions, and we had the great enlightenment. We were just so much smarter than we were ever before. And there was more wealth than there ever was. And they, 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 This whole conference was about how now we can finally have world peace. Well, six months later, World War I started. <laughs> in the 1900s, the 20th century became the most violent and deadly uh, century of any of the centuries for war. In fact, it's estimated that over like 150 million people died in war, some way related. And that doesn't even include the Holocaust and all the other deaths that are related to that. And so why is it when man feels we're at our smartest, we actually have less peace than we've ever had before? Well... I could have told them about the world peace in 1913 just by simply reading Psalm 2 that what they thought was going to happen wasn't going to happen. Because we get to see why there is no world peace. And taking it to our specific level, this is why we don't have peace in our own lives. Like you don't have to look at world peace. You can just say my own life is is chaos. I very rarely feel peace. And I would imagine if you very rarely feel peace, it's because of what Psalm 2 says. Psalm 2 verse 1 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And that word plot is the same word that's used in Psalm one when it's talking about meditating upon God's law. That's kind of the positive side of it. But he says most of us we, we ruminate on those things that are not that great, and you guys would probably all agree with that. Even if you're not a Christian, does your mind generally go towards good things or bad things? You know, for me, like I can I can hear a thousand of you say, Man, that was a great sermon or good job or I love a cent, but all it takes is one person to say something negative, or even slightly negative, for me to begin to ruminate on that all day long. And honestly, when I'm in the the dark of the night in my room and and, uh, nobody's around, my my thoughts tend to not go towards positive things, but negative things, destructive things. Why does this happen? Why do the nations rage and why do people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. That word anointed one is the word Messiah. This is why we call this a a messianic psalm because it points forward to the Messiah, the anointed one. Which is what Jesus is called. And here's a little uh, trivia for you. What was Jesus' last name? Now, I'm not going to make you answer because most of you say Christ. And you'd be wrong. Christ is actually not Jesus' last name. It's his title. Christ is the anointed one. It's the king. And all of the Israelites were awaiting, they were awaiting the Christ that would come. And it was Jesus. Of Nazareth, We don't know his last name, so it might have been Jesus, Joseph's son. (laughs) We have no idea. But Jesus of Nazareth comes, and he is the Christ. He is the anointed one. And the reason why we have no peace in the world, and the reason we have no peace in our own lives, is because we conspire against Jesus' rule in our life. We conspire against his kingdom in our life. And you say, Blake, I don't do that. I'm not, like, setting up all night conspiring against Jesus and his kingdom. But you probably are, and you just don't even know it. And here's, here's, here's what most of us feel when we think about God and we think about his kingdom. It's why uh, a lot of us would rather just focus on baby Jesus when it comes to Advent. Because babies aren't all that intimidating, are they? <laughs> like, it uh, makes me think of the, the theologian Ricky Bobby. <laughs> and that wonderful quote he has about liking baby Jesus the best. And <laughs> his friends like, well, I like to picture Jesus in this way. And they're, they're, they're trying to picture Jesus the way they want to picture him. But the joy that we have in baby Jesus being born is that baby Jesus grows up to be King Jesus. And King Jesus is ruling and he is reigning and he doesn't compromise. You know, it's not like you get to, you get to negotiate with Jesus on the parts of your life that he has kingdom over and the parts he doesn't. I, I've told you before, but the, the crusaders, those who would go out and kill in the name of Christ, would, when they were baptized, they would baptize themselves with their sword, but they would hold their sword out of the water. Like, in other words, Jesus, you can have all of me, but you cannot have my sword. With that, I will do with what I want. And it is true that Jesus, if he's not king of all, he's not king at all. We see this throughout the Gospels. You can't read the Gospels and not see that. But so many of us view Jesus and his commands in the way verse 3 says it. It says, let's tear off their chains. This is what the people say. And throw their ropes off of us. And if you're honest you've probably felt like God's commands were like that sometimes, that they're restrictive. I mean, I could just have more fun if I wasn't restricted by what God says. You know, if, if, I could, if I could do what I wanted sexually, if I could do what I wanted with my free time, if I could do what I wanted with my family, I would be so much better off. And when I look at the commands of God, what I honestly see is restriction. It feels like chains that bind me down, that I need to break free of. And this is natural in the human heart. In fact, this is what happens in Genesis chapter 3 when the fall happens. See, a lot of people think the fall happened because man ate an apple. Uh, that's, not, that's not what it is. In fact, the Bible doesn't even say apple. Uh, I personally believe it was a carrot. I know, I know it's not a fruit, but I mean, that's Satan's, you know. So anyways, uh, so the, the reason we fell was because of the tree that they ate the fruit of. It was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In other words, what man wanted to do was to be God for themselves. I get to choose what is right and what is wrong. I get to say what is good and what is bad. And how dare you for trying to tell me what is good or what is bad. And this isn't just true with God. It's true with every authority that's put over us. You remember when you were a teenager, uh, your parents would tell you something. And just because they told you to do it made you not want to do it. (laughs) You know, it's funny because when I was younger, my parents give me a bedtime. And uh, I would fight against that bedtime as much as I possibly could. And now that I'm a grown man, I can go to bed whenever I want. I desperately want to go to bed at nine o'clock. But it's something about the restriction, something about my soul that wants to break free of these chains. And by nature, this is the way we see God. This is the way we see Jesus as trying to restrict us from something. But what's interesting is in other Psalms and throughout the Bible, what we see is God didn't come to put chains on us. He came to take chains off of us. Psalm 107 says, I will break the chains on you. I will take the yoke of the chains off of you. And Jesus, in Mark chapter 5, when he comes to a demoniac, a guy who the whole town has tried to chain, tried to restrict, and he keeps breaking out of those chains. Jesus comes, and he doesn't put chains on him. He frees him, and what he does is he changes the man at the desire level. See, what we have is, is not a doing problem. We have a wanting problem. Our wanter is broken. We don't want to do what we ought to do. And Jesus comes to make us want to do that which we ought to do. When you begin to see God's commands not as restrictive, but as a refuge, you begin to see God in a completely different light. So when God gives us a command, it's because he set up the world. He knows the way it works, and he wants us to have peace, and he knows how peace comes. I was just thinking about three uh, Old Testament commands this week that people in Psalm 2 probably would have known as they heard it originally. Uh, Number one, I I thought of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is uh, taking a whole day off of work, uh, work of any kind, and it was a day to worship God. God. Uh, and what began to happen is religious people got involved and it became very legalistic and they would tell you what you could and what you couldn't do. And it it became something that was very restrictive in the sense that it, it held them back. You know, if I didn't have this day, I could get more done or I could do what I wanted. And see, they thought that to be free would be to be able to have all the days of the week to themselves. But what they didn't realize is God gave them that command because to be free of the Sabbath didn't actually mean you were free. It just meant you were a slave to something else. You're a slave to your work. And a lot of us, especially in uh, 21st century America, get that, do we not? Like, there's always more work to do. There's always more things to do. If you get all your work done, then, uh, you know, you can retire. But those who are in retirement will tell you that's almost more work. Because then you begin to work on your house, and you've always got things to do, and things are coming up. And so God, in his kindness, gives us this day where we can have peace, where we can rest in him. And what do we do with it? We see it as a chain. But in reality, all we're doing is chaining ourselves to something else. You look at God's commands on money. You know, uh, I used to think often, man, if I wasn't a Christian, think how much money I would have. Like, I, you know, I wouldn't even feel bad. I could just give it away. Uh, I could go get a job, get paid a lot of money, uh, and and you know, it'd be it'd be awesome. But what Jesus says is, in reality, you think you're free to do what you want. If you break out of these commands, what you're actually doing is chaining yourself to something else. You're chained to money. And have we not seen this over and over and over in the human experience where somebody gets a lot of money and it corrupts their soul? And yet we think we need to be free so that we can do what we want. And God says, I want you to give money, not because I need it, but because you need it. Because your soul will be corrupted by your stuff and by your possessions. And then I also thought of the, one of the Ten Commandments, which is to not covet, which is really an interesting one. That makes God's top ten. You know, don't covet. Why would God have that? Why does God care if I covet what you have? Um, Coveting uh, in the Greek is is Facebook uh, and Instagram. That's a joke. It's not really there. (laughs) But truly, this is where we covet more than anywhere else, right? I get to see your life and compare it with my life. Why would God have that as a command? Why would he bind me to that? Because he loves me. (laughs) And comparison rots my soul. See, I think I'm free from God by doing what I want. But in reality, what am I doing? I'm chaining myself to something else. Jesus came to free us from those chains. And yet we often in our heart see God as restrictive. As we move into verse 4, it says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. God scoffs at us. He laughs at us when we think we can define things for ourselves. Like, we, you know, I, I, I know what the Bible says about this, but it's a 2000 year old book. I mean, you know, what does that really know about life? You know, like we 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 have advanced beyond that. I know what's best for my marriage. I know what's best for my sexuality. I know what's best and fill in the blank in whatever area you have and what God does when you do that, when I do that, is he laughs. And I, I think this laughing is kind of like uh, if you're a parent, when you see your kid do something that, you know, how it's already going to end. Right, Like you told them not to do it. Don't touch the stove. It's hot. But they want to touch the stove. And you finally say, okay, touch the stove. See what happens. And what happens? They burn their hand. They go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And you go, yep, that's what I told you. Right? This is what God is like in heaven as he looks at us. We are like children. We don't know what's best. We're telling the one who created everything. We're telling the one who created sexuality itself how we ought to do our sexuality. We're telling the one who created the systems of the world how the systems of the world ought to work. How foolish are we when we do this in our family life, in our personal life, in our private life? And the one in heaven laughs because he knows how it's going to end. He laughs because he sees our destruction before it happens. And not the destruction he is putting on us, but the destruction we're putting on ourselves. In verse uh, 11, uh, it says, or verse 12 rather, it says, Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry. I'm going to come back to that word angry in a minute. And you will perish in your rebellion. You will perish in the way of your rebellion, is what it literally says. In other words, God doesn't have to punish us. We punish ourselves with these bad decisions. We And, and we've all seen this, right? Somebody has freedom in something, and they, they, you know, they're you the life of the party, so to speak. But it's not so funny when years down the road they have an addiction. Or somebody who's completely free uh, sexually, but it's not so funny when they have so much heartache and break that it's... it's I mean, I said across from people who have been so broken sexually that it's not even funny. It's not so funny anymore. And so this laughing that God has is not a, not a laughing like he's laughing at us. I believe it's, it's more of kind of a, a laughing of, I see what's coming and it's not going to be good for you. So we move to verse 5. It says, Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. We know this is about Jesus because in Mark chapter 1, actually in all the Gospels, Jesus is baptized. As he comes up out of the water, Uh, the dove descends down. The dove represents the Holy Spirit, and uh, there's an audible voice that comes out that says, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, Jesus is up there with Peter and John and James, and uh, the cloud of God's presence comes over them. They're all terrified out of their minds, as you would be as well. And God says what? He says, This is my son. Listen to him. Verse 8 says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And then verse 9 says something interesting. You will break them with an iron scepter, and you will shatter them like pottery. In other words this anointed one is to be the king of the world. And you hear that language of shattering like pottery. It's very violent. (laughs) And this is why people were so confused when Jesus showed up. This is why he wasn't the Messiah that they were expecting. This is why when Jesus died, they all thought the movement died because Jesus, the Messiah was supposed to come and take over everything by force. And the Israelite people had been waiting for this for a very, very long time in their nation's history. And they had been a country that was under oppression by several different empires. I mean, I think when we think of Israel, because we live in America, which is really powerful, very rich. We we spend 10 times as much on military as any other country. uh, We we tend to think that Israel was this force. But Israel was really small. In fact, the the kings of the world would laugh at Psalm 2 before Jesus showed up. It's like, really? (laughs) You're going to crush us you're going to be the kingdom that rules the world. It'd be like if the Canadians were like, we're going to rule the world. Okay, we like your maple syrup, but don't get carried away. You, know? <laughs> you don't have the power to do that. That's Israel. And yet they say this, and they're waiting for this Messiah, and they're trusting in this Messiah for hundreds and thousands of years. And when Jesus shows up and he begins to fulfill prophecy, the guys are like, yes, here we go. We're about to take over. And uh, that's why when, when he comes in, he rides into to the city of Jerusalem. Everybody is shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, because they think he's coming in to, to save them. Peter is ready for a fight. When they come to get him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cuts off a guy's ear. I think he just had really bad aim or something. I don't know. Uh, but Jesus picks up the guy's ear and puts it back on his head. He heals the one who Peter thought we were supposed to be wounding. And he goes to the cross and he dies the death that nobody thought he was supposed to die you're supposed to kill. You're not supposed to be the one dying. And yet we see something in Jesus' first coming that we will see differently in the second coming. And that is, on the first mission, the king came for a different kind of throne. There's really three thrones that Jesus uh, already has, he's getting, and he will eventually have. The, The first throne is the throne in the cosmic realm. Uh, The Bible, uh, when we often think of it, we have a very platonic view uh, of heaven and hell and earth, meaning like a lot of us think heaven is somewhere else and uh, hell is somewhere else, uh, and then earth is here. Uh, When in reality, the Bible teaches in the New Testament that really it's, it's better to think of them as different dimensions almost. That there's something in this world going on where there's heaven and there's hell and they are warring against each other in this earth. So there's a veil that I can't see that is going on right now in the spiritual realm. And what I do in this life, through prayer and through obedience to Jesus, affects something in that realm. And the way that realm operates affects something in this realm. And before the coming of Jesus, authority and dominion was in the hands of Satan. Yet with Jesus, he came and he died on the cross and he rose again. And in his resurrection, what he did was he defeated the powers that we cannot see, the spiritual powers and principalities. Don't ask me any further questions. I don't understand it. It blows my mind. But that's what we have in the scripture. And this is why in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus, when he sends us out to go, he says, go. And what he does, is he says, I'll be with you. And I have all the authority. In other words, he took the power from Satan. So that as Christians, we're not afraid of the spiritual world. And as we preach the gospel, we push back darkness. And it's this, this idea of heaven taking over and heaven pushing hell out. And that's what has happened with the church. The church has made more advancements for the world than any other organization. We've made more advancements in education, in the arts, in the feeding of the poor. In every area you can imagine, in human rights, the church of Jesus Christ has pushed back darkness. Now, I will also say that the world is regressing in a certain way, but often we only talk about the bad side of things. No, the church of Jesus has made a huge, massive difference as we push back the darkness. Why? Because Jesus is on his throne. And we see this actually in Jesus' ascension more than anything else. It's like the most forgotten part of the gospel. My definition of the gospel for a long time has been uh, God's plan to save his creation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I forgot something. I forgot the ascension. Uh, Because honestly, for a lot of my life, the ascension was just kind of weird. You know, Jesus rose from the dead. He showed some people some stuff, and then he like just disappeared up into the sky. Like, what is he doing there? But in reality, what he's doing is he's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy that we see in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, it says he will come to his throne on the clouds. And we often think of the second coming of Jesus. It's preached that way a lot. Jesus is going to come on the clouds. But when that's mentioned in the New Testament, primarily what it's talking about is not him coming, but him coming to his throne in heaven. So that means he is at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all the cosmic realities that there are in this world. It's the right hand of the Father. That's really good news for us. I mean, I don't know. How many of you want to live in a world that Satan's ruling? not me I'd rather rule in a world where King Jesus is ruling that's the throne he's on that's already done it's taken care of the throne he is seeking right now is the throne of your heart this is, this is the age we're in we're called the church age where Jesus is drawing his people in so that he can be on the throne of the hearts of his people drawing them in And if you've ever wondered why it's taking Jesus so long to come back and get the last throne, which is the throne over all the worlds, this is when he's going to crush the kingdoms of this world and his will be the only kingdom, and it will be a kingdom of peace and joy and love, is because he wants you. That's why he's waiting. He's patient. He's patient. I'm about to talk about God's wrath. But to understand God's wrath, you have to understand his mercy is greater than his wrath. His patience is greater than his wrath. And the reason why God is waiting is because he wants you to find refuge in him. He came and he made a way for us to have relationship with him. So let's uh, look at God's anger and then we'll we'll finish up here pretty soon. Verse 10 it says so now kings be wise receive instruction you judges of the earth serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling pay homage to the sun that could literally be translated kiss the sun or He will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment All who take refuge in him are happy We think of God's wrath. Uh, a lot of us put God on trial Like I read verses like that and there's something in my soul that doesn't like it You know, it doesn't match up with my view of who God is um, Like I, I I it's hard for me to think of God in this <laughs> wrathful vengeful kind of way And yet what we have to understand as Christians, first and foremost, is that we deserve all the wrath that God has for us. We we have earned it with our sin. We have sinned against the God of this universe. And for us to think that he wouldn't be angry with us is honestly uh, saying something about the way we think God loves us. Because if you love, it magnifies all other emotions. And if you're a parent, you know this. Love magnifies your wrath. For instance, uh, if you're a parent and you tell me you love your kid, and I say, where's your kid? Like, I don't know, I put him in some kind of, some guy came and took him in a van, and uh, I don't know, It's weird. I forgive the guy, though. I don't really care. Uh, I'd be like, I don't think you love your kid. Because if somebody takes your kid and you love them, you know what you feel? Wrath. Anger. And it is a good type of anger. You should be mad. If you're not mad, there's something wrong with you. And this is why when something happens to the things we love, we care about it a lot more than when things happen to other people. You know, like I get those Amber Alerts on my phone, and uh, to be honest with you, they're annoying to me sometimes. It's really sad to say, but it's true. Like the thing goes off, and I'm like, stop going off. And yet, you know what I know? There's a parent somewhere (laughs) who is hoping everybody is reading that Amber Alert, because they want nothing more than to find the person who took their kid, and to get their kid back, and they'd do anything for it. Wrath goes with love. So if God is infinite in his love, he must also be infinite in his wrath. And why does God hate sin? Because sin hurts that which he loves the most. It hurts you and it hurts me. And God loves me and he loves you too much. See, it, for me, I find it actually quite comforting that Adolf Hitler, when he thought he was escaping the trial of the Americans by committing suicide in his bunker, Only opened his eyes to a judge way greater than any judge we have in our system. It gives me great hope to know that Joseph Stalin, who killed hundreds of millions of people, defamed the name of God, when he opened his eyes in the next world, he saw a judge who he wishes he had not seen. And yet, God has a problem because he loves us and we are the sinners. So the ones hurting the ones he loves are the ones he loves. So what does he do about it? He takes on flesh and he takes the wrath himself. Verse nine, look at it again. It says, you will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery or like clay, which the Bible often uses to say you you will return to dust. That's what you are. You're like a clay pot as a human and you're going to go to dust and what does Jesus do? He comes and he takes the striking we deserved. All of the wrath of God completely satisfied in his death because of his perfect life. And in his resurrection, it is a stamp that he was he was who he said he was and he did what he said he would do. And in him, we can find refuge. And he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting. And there will not be one of us on that day of judgment when he does come back who cannot say that we have not heard the grace of God preached. And I'm very serious right now. I mean, you're like, man, he's, he's really fired up. Because it's really important. It's really important that you know the love of God. Because you're never going to follow God if you, don't, if you don't see his love for you. And friends, if you are a Christian here today, this is a great moment of rejoicing. And this is why we adore him as we sing. Serve the Lord with reverential awe, it says, and rejoice with trembling. Those of us who get this don't live in fear that God's going to judge us for what we did. We look back on what he did for us, and the more we look at Jesus on the cross, it should never get old to us. It should only get more and more amazing. When I mess up, God knew about that mess up before the foundations of the earth, and he paid for it. That should only make me love him all the more. To know that when I sin against you, and I sin against God. It has been paid for in Jesus Christ. And if you're the type of person who Paul talks about in Romans 6, 1, who says, so we can sin all the more so that grace may abound. You don't get it. You don't get it. This is why it says pay homage or kiss the son. Because if you love Jesus, if you fall in love with him and what he did for you, then you would want to follow him. You see, I, I, I don't want to avoid sin because I'm afraid of judgment. I avoid sin because I trust that God is good. I want to, even when I mess up, when I mess up, there's something in my soul. There's a posture in my soul that says, Jesus, I want to follow you because friends, I have never, and Molly and everybody else, there's too many names for me to say, you guys can go (laughs) ahead and come up in those, in those moments where I have obeyed Jesus and I followed him. You know, I've never, ever regretted it. (laughs) Like I've never been like, man, I wish I wouldn't have spent my money the way Jesus said to really wish I wouldn't have prayed today. No, it's always for my good. And, and the question you have to ask yourself when you think of Jesus and you think of his kingdom and the peace he can provide, do you see him as somebody who's restricting you or do you see him as a source of refuge? That's really the question this psalm is asking us. Some people find refuge and happiness under the kingship of Jesus. Others of us, we want to keep our own king or queen crown on. I'll decide for me what is best, what is right and what is wrong. And I would just ask you, how, how's that working out for you? Are you a good queen? Are you a good king? Do you have peace in your life? Do you have joy in your life? Or like so many of us, have you seen that when I leave my own life, it doesn't go down the right paths? <laughs> I end up in places I never thought I would end up. I do things I never thought I would do. I hurt myself and I hurt others. And if that's you today, Jesus is waiting for you. A king inviting you into his kingdom. Let me pray for you. Father God, I struggle for words preaching this message. God, I know how easily it is to be misunderstood. And Jesus, I just want people to see you for who you are. Your love and your grace and your mercy. God, to see that the wrath that is righteous in you is because of your great love for us. God, I thank you that you've provided a way of refuge, that you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting to return so that more and more and more of us might make you the king of our lives. God, I pray today we would make no time in wasting as we reflect upon whether or not you're the king of our life. God, not in an altar call sense where we raise our hand and Because we feel a certain way, we say, you're the king of my life, but God, in a true way where we live like we believe you are who you say you are, willing to sacrifice everything to follow you in your kingdom because we believe you are the one true king. God, I pray today you would open the eyes of somebody in this room to see you for who you are, their savior and their Lord, the king of peace, the mighty counselor. Lord, may we adore you as we worship. Right now, friends, if you would, just want you to take 20 seconds of silence and ask the Lord what he might be saying to you through this message. Father, I pray that you'd give us the courage to obey what you've called us to do through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Friends, let's stand and worship together. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks.